This is the Behind the Sports Story podcast. I'm your host, Dave Boboff. Back to the Behind the Sports Story podcast. Thank you to everyone who's been listening to season two so far. If you haven't heard the first three episodes of the season, go check them out. They're really awesome. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Lindsay Krasnoff, who's an international sports writer, historian, and consultant working at the intersection of sports, international affairs, and global communications. Her work, including her books, have appeared in CNN, Sports Illustrated, New Yorker, New York Times, Review France, Vice Sport, and more. She's been a historian for the Office of the Historian in the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Public Affairs. She's taught courses in history, writing, and international affairs to undergrads, grads, and professionals at public, private, government institutions, including the Foreign Service Institute, the George Washington University, Queens College, and Baruch College. She's currently a research associate with the Center for International Studies and Diplomacy at SOAS at the University of London. And Lindsay holds a PhD in history from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York, a master's in journalism and French studies from NYU, and a bachelor's of arts in international affairs from the George Washington University. Super impressive. Let's go. All right, Dr. Lindsay Krasnov, how uh, how are you today? I am well, thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Absolutely. So I was someone who studied history in college. I do communications now in sports. Mm-hmm. And when I was learning more about you, I was like, you are doing all of these things. In, uh, Trying to. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I'm very excited to see that because that's the, a lot of my interests are in the work that you're in. So can you just go a, a little bit into how you became a, a, a sports historian, how you started working with sports diplomacy. Well, what's that path like? Uh, it is a kind of unique path, but hopefully um, uh, provide it helps to pave the way for others uh, to do uh, really interesting and great things. Uh, I, I think it begins with the fact that I, you know, I grew up in and around Boston. So, uh, you know, Boston has a very strong, uh, long sports tradition and, my second grade math classes were centered around keeping track of the Celtics versus the Lakers. So that gives you an idea for kind of the the initial context. I grew up going to Boston Bruins games with my dad uh, or my grandfather, and this was back in the old Boston Garden. And I remember, in addition to watching the game on the ice and you know, learning the offsides rules and all that, I'd ask questions such as, why do people talk differently from us? I don't have the stereotypical Boston accent. Um, How come people dress differently than we do? Why are they drinking tall beers out of paper bags? And where are all the other girls and women? There is no line to go to the bathroom way back then. Um, So, you know, these were the kinds of questions that I found really intriguing um, through kind of the sports prism. And uh, as I started to think about what a professional pathway would look like, I was really keen on sports journalism. Um, a little known fact is that I still have my FCC um, broadcasting license from high school. 
when I trained with the radio station and I called, uh, you know, the high school football games, probably not very well. Um, but you know, that, that was a, an early start. Um, I did my master's, uh, training in journalism, sports journalism, as well as French studies, uh, pursuing another, um, longtime passion. And in order to uh, get out of that program and graduate, I had to do a series of investigative journalistic articles on something sports and something France. And at the time, it was right after France won the World Cup the first time uh, and the European Championship. So I naturally fell into French football, French soccer. Sometimes I might use the the words interchangeably. Um, But that's really kind of how it all began. And when I left that journalism program at NYU, uh, I went into the sports publishing side on the editorial side, uh, working on game day programs. So learning the the, the trade of you know what it takes to do uh, the editing, the local editing, copy editing, the layout, all of that. Um, but thinking, well, this still isn't really fe- feeding my need to examine some of these bigger questions uh, involving sports and society and you know geopolitics. How can I do that? And that was part of the motivation for going uh, back for my PhD in history. I'd always been interested in history, but particularly sports history, which w- was at the time still an evolving field here in the United States. It was a bit more advanced in Europe and across Canada and the Commonwealth. Um, so that's really kind of how, how it all began. Um, and I've been navigating uh, the, the path between academia, government, uh, and the private sector ever since. When pursuing or thinking about pursuing the academics of sports history, I studied mostly Car- Caribbean history, history of the slave trade, things like that. And there are professors that were experts at this, wrote books about it. Did you, mm-hmm. did you find that there was an established field about sports history or there it was yes. still in its what what sports what what areas were those professors focused on and and how has that changed to to today yeah and that's a great question so the field has evolved considerably um, <clears throat> even since i i graduated which was yesterday though in all seriousness the, the field has evolved it's become richer and more broad and what you see now is a lot of specialist work um on on the field. Um, and increasingly, you are seeing a lot of, well, you've always seen it, uh, particularly a lot of historians who we've trained as regional or period experts, right? So I'm in, a, you know, my, my background and training is as a modern European historian with a focus on modern France. And, you know, within that, my kind of my subfield of specialization uh, is sports. And so you see increasingly a lot of other historians with that regional um, time period specific focus than delving into sports, which is helpful in numerous ways in terms of helping to paint the broader picture and the broader context. One of the key evolutions that we've seen over the past 20 years has been a broadening of the field. So more people are publishing in it and they're not just publishing uh, fan histories. They're publishing substantial histories of sport or a, a theme in sport or through a sports lens to get at larger changes, evolutions, um, and um, movements that still are impacting our world today. Um, And so I think that's one of the big changes. The second big change is that with the opening up of archives, uh, archives usually are closed to the public for, depending on the country, between 20, 25, and 30 years. 
after they were uh, created. Uh, so, you know, as we're going forward in time, we're now getting archives um, open from a key period of transition in the sports world, the late 80s and the 1990s, when we saw a whole lot of change on a global level um, that really has remade uh, the sports world that we're dealing with today. Um, so with the opening of those archives, you're seeing a lot more um, contemporary histories uh, being written about sports. So it's no longer uh, focused on older periods, but um, really laying the groundwork for us to better understand what's going on today based on what we're finding in the archives from that critical period. And then the third major evolution that I think is really a sea change, and I'm really, really glad to see it, is that we're beginning to see the decentralization of the larger global sport narrative uh, away from the United States, which is not to say that the United States has taken any bit less of an importance in the sports history field. What I mean by that is that we are getting other more global perspectives um, added into the mix. So it's, you know, for example, I take the example of um, sport during the Cold War, right? Um, uh, for a long time, the dominant narrative was that, you know, sport in the Cold War was a battle of East versus West, the United States against the Soviet Union. But what we've seen, um, especially over the past 10 years, has been a broadening of that. So, yes, sport in the Cold War was in part East versus West, a, a clash of ideological, uh, you know, battles, but it's also much more. It was used by everyone, regardless of size, regardless of ideology. Um, we really see the politicization of sport um, for geopolitical purposes in a wide variety of different ways during the Cold War. And the historians that have been publishing on that over the past 10 years have helped to broaden our understanding um, about sports use in different parts of the world, how it's viewed, uh, and then also how it's changed. And, you know, you can still, this stuff plays out, you know, on the on the fields today. You know, when you watch uh, the summer's uh, European championship, um, the UEFA Europe, when you watch the Olympics, when you watch Afrobasket, these are all changes that were fomented during that period. So those are the three big changes I've seen. And I guess on, on your last point about... Um how people are now having more access to certain information and uh, a different viewpoint about what is considered part of the context of sports history and sports diplomacy. So that's the academic sense. Where then are external organizations, governmental organizations, sports leagues, taking from the information that you and your uh, colleagues are, are learning, uh, cataloging, and 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 what learnings are are they are utilizing? Uh, so that's a great question. It, it's a little difficult to say because it depends and it varies from organization to organization, sport to sport. Certain sports, I think, are more because of whether the leadership uh, at the top of the organization or the personalities who are helping to drive their um, strategies and policies are more open to. Um, tapping in uh, to the increased wealth of information and letting that help to inform uh, their onwards planning and structures um, more so than others. So, you know, I see this particularly with um, those who are working on the very global sports of basketball, uh, of soccer, uh, simply because I think there is very much a recognition that there's a lot of deep 
history and geopolitical uses of those sports in other parts of the world where they'd like to start playing or increase their footprint um, and recognition that, um, you know, they're not starting from a blank slate. So I do see that, um, and, and I see particularly within the the context of sports diplomacy, since it's something that, um, until m- more recently, it hasn't been as much of a formalized, constituted field. Thus, was never really taught quite so much. I, I see a lot of interest of um, uh, those on the industry side um, in the media trying to learn more about it and wrap their heads around sports diplomacy as a tool, as a framework, as a field that if you're operating in the global sports arena, chances are you're engaged in it in some way, shape, or form, even if you might not recognize it as such. And and so for a lot of these organizations that have been pursuing globalization, well, I guess I'm talking about American ones um, since mm-hmm. the 90s and the Dream Team, for example, going over to Europe, I, I would assume that these organizations would then have to say, okay, if we're going to look at China as a as a future market, let's say back in 20 years ago, we have to understand the cultural understanding of what for one, the, the sports norms are, um, but also some social norms and how playing sports in a certain way uh, would and how agreeable it would be. Sort of like, um, I, what was I thinking about? Jesuits in China trying to figure out how to make Catholicism fit with like the cultural and spiritual di- dynamic in China um, and how like the Pope was really angry about that. But what are some historical examples of how leagues across the world specifically enforce a product in a way that that probably didn't work as well as it could have if they if they mm-hmm. had tweaked it? I'd love to be able to give you all kinds of examples, um, but uh, particularly because you asked within the context of U.S. leagues, um, because they have no mandate to make their archives and um, inner inner um, documentation publicly available. We just really don't know in concrete details um, what what that process, what the thought considerations were like. Um, So we are running up against that. Um, When you talk about um, organizations, for example, in Europe, uh, where sport is uh, much more of a, you know, there's some kind of federal uh, government um, buy-in, there's a ministry of sports, there are certain requirements for the federations to leave the paper trail in, in the archives and all of that. Um, you have a little bit more uh, of a sense, but then you still run up uh, against issues of, well, for uh, privately held organizations, they have no mandate to open up their archives for access. So it's really difficult to articulate that. Um, what I would point to, though, on the other hand, is an organization like the NBA, um, that has truly globalized over the past several decades and uh, has globalized in a in- interesting way. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a co-director of the Basketball Diplomacy in Africa Oral History Project, um, uh, affiliated with the SOAS, um, University of London, SOAS University of London. And one of the things we found in pulling together those oral history interviews um, was asking some of the key stakers in and around the NBA uh, how they thought about uh, their expansion into Africa. Um, what were the thought processes or things that they were thinking of when they you know, created Basketball Africa League, which just finished its first um, tournament season. Um, and so we do have some of that now finally on the record. And it's important to keep in mind that while the NBA has uh, expanded its footprint in Africa, it's done so um, 
thanks to um, many Africans themselves. You know, you look to uh, the president of the Bao, uh, Amadou Galafal, you know, born in Senegal, uh, has, yes, spent a lot of his career and his um, university in the United States, worked with the NBA for several decades. But there is a there are many reasons why it's his leadership that has really spurred the development of NBA Africa um, and now the Bao. So I think that's one example of one U.S. sports organization um, being pretty thoughtful in terms of their global, increasing their global footprint and la- launching uh, new new entities therein. Is there have to be a certain infrastructure already existing? in in the market is it um a some cultural elements that you've noticed patterns that there's people are more interested in it in basketball here and some are more stubbornly just interested in, in soccer here for for whatever reason like what, what are some patterns you've seen yeah so i mean looking at the cultural context that's one of the key starting points it's much easier to say be a basketball organization and try to go into most parts of the world than it is trying to be an NFL American football um, organization, simply because there is not that same kind of cultural context of having American football in most countries around the world. So you have to do a lot more legwork. You have to do a lot more development. You have to have a lot more funding because obviously American football requires a lot more money to participate, right? Larger teams, all the um, pads, helmets, everything involved with it. Whereas basketball or soccer, which have been part of many, you know, kind of um, countries, cultures for in many parts of the world, more than a hundred years and require at its basic minimum, a ball. It's just that much easier um, in a lot of different ways. So um, one of the keys, I think, to success in, in this sphere is understanding the cultural context in which you're going into I think also having a handle on who plays what within that context. You know, um, I've been working on basketball in France for the past several years, and so many Americans are surprised to learn that basketball has, or at least for a very long time, was considered a sport more of the middle classes and the elites and uh, not part of the working classes or the immigrant classes or the urban, you know, uh, the urban classes. So knowing who plays and you know what they're keen at that that is also helpful, and then I think um, also the geopolitical context as well plays into that too. You know, certain countries um, have certain histories with certain games um, tied back either into colonial history um, or regime um, desires or interests. Um, you know, take the example of China, which does not have as much of a soccer tradition as say uh, Japan or uh, Algeria, just trying to pick different examples. But um, Chinese leadership is very keen on making China a soccer country um, and have started to invest heavily in that. So that's another example of kind of more of a geopolitical context that is really handy to have your wrap your head around. The the middle the middle class example <clears throat> that was you're, you're referring to in France, mm-hmm. is that purely because because uh, because of the the tools and instruments and the fact that you, anyone can play soccer outside with something, uh, but basketball you need more of a you need a court and a and a hoop or is it just 
the way that it was initially introduced? It's the way that the two sports developed along different tracks. So soccer was first introduced to France in the late 19th century by um, British workers who came over, uh, but also by the sons of the French upper classes who were sent to school in England. At the time, that was considered, you know, uh, very um, a la mode, right? Um, it, there was a lot of influences uh, from the British um, school systems, and the British were playing soccer, football, uh, and rugby. Um, and so those games came to France in the late 19th century uh, through part of that migration. So when you look at who was playing soccer in France in the late 19th century, turn of the 20th century, it was um, British expats and the um, sons uh, of the middle classes and upper classes who had had that connection into, into England. That began to change, um, and particularly the World War I uh, period, uh, democratized all sport, well, most sports, particularly football, soccer. Um, it introduced it to uh, all of those who are serving in the trenches and the, in the back lines. Also, we saw the expansion of women's football in France during the wartime years. Um, and so that really kind of changed who played. The key turning point though for, for soccer in France came in the 1930s. Soccer was the first sport to professionalize team sport to professionalize. And for France, there has long been this ideal of amateurism that was first enshrined by Pierre de Coubertin, the founder of the Olympics. And the, that old Olympic ideal of amateurism, sports for sports sake and uh, fraternity and friendship, um, which was very much antithetical to the concept of being a paid professional athlete soccer, cycling, or otherwise. And so there, there was a little bit of that tension starting from the 1930s. It was seen as uh, a little bit uh, declassé to be a professional soccer player, um, even though it was the sport that was the most mediatized, uh, consumed, and popularly played. Everyone played it, especially uh, the continuous waves of immigrants who would come into France um, from around the empire, from Italy, from Spain, from Portugal, from Eastern Europe, from Russia, um, from Germany, uh, Central Europe. Um, it was a way to, um, you know, to help reinforce a sense of community, right? Uh, which is, and to enforce the ideals of the Republic democracy um, that through your merit on the field, you could excel, not based on who you knew, um, you know, playing by the rules, listening to the authority of the referees, um, teamwork, all of that sort of thing. Um, so a little bit of attention there. Uh, whereas, and that's why professional soccer was long associated with the lower classes, the working classes, um, and that kind of uh, taint of professional play. Basketball, on the other hand, um, you know, the it was brought to France two years after it was uh, first played in the United States. Um, and so France has the longest uh, tradition of basketball in all of Europe, um, even though other countries' basketball traditions might be more widely known. But basketball was long something that was incorporated by the schools and the military, especially after World War I. It was something that boys played. It was something that girls played. Girls' basketball, basketball for women was seen as very good and healthy. Um, but it never really had any kind of professional status until uh, the mid-late 1980s. 
So there was no way to necessarily make a living um, fully um, as a paid professional um, in sport. So its association with the schools and the military helped to explain why it was long seen as more of a middle-class sport. Because if you wanted to play it outside of school, you had to have the leisure time uh, to do so. Very cool. I find that I find this very interesting. <laughs> so thank you very much. Um, so when you think about sports diplomacy, and let's say without any of the context that you've been giving, uh, things that would come to mind are like the movie Miracle, because we talked about so Soviet Union mm -hmm. uh, versus U.S. Uh, you just brought up the 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 Olympics, and and thinking about playing in the context of of country. What are some examples of how sports has very seriously crossed in, over into politics or uh, national identity in a way that was in the context of countries dealing with each other. Mm. So in a more formal context. So yes. with sports diplomacy, we kind of have three key types of sports diplomacy. We've got formal sports diplomacy, uh, where you have uh, governments or government representatives, uh, your national athletes competing at the Olympics, for example, or at a World Cup playing for your national team. That's an example of formal sports diplomacy. But you also have informal sports diplomacy, that's people-to-people um, -people citizen uh, diplomacy and engagement. And that's, by and large, the greater chunk of sports diplomacy that occurs today. Uh, but your question does, uh, and then the third type is digital sports diplomacy. Uh, but your question speaks very much to formal sports diplomacy, where you have the hard geopolitics involved. Um, and there's numerous examples, both historically as well as uh, present day, just taking but one example from today's news cycle. Um, uh, there was a report in uh, the French uh, sports daily, L'Equipe, uh, of uh, that uh, Russia will be able to play its national anthem during the UEFA Euro this summer, even though uh, the Russian national anthem and flag have been banned from the Olympics. Uh, you know, getting back to the um, implications of the uh, doping um, uh, doping issues um, uh, a few years ago. Uh, so that's one example just of today of um, how sports diplomacy and geopolitics collide. Um, there's long been this, this intersection of sports diplomacy and geopolitics. Um, going back to the uh, post-World War I period, uh, where you see uh, recognition that um, with the rise of sports and the commencement of international play and tournaments, uh, that to represent the nation um, on the field could also confer some kind of soft power, the ability to influence or persuade others based on your sporting prowess or reputation. Uh, remember the uh, FIFA World Cup was created in 1930. That was its first edition. The Olympics had already been going for several cycles. Uh, but the rise of fascism in government in Germany and in Italy in the 1930s really helped to turbocharge the uh, political or geopolitical use of sports um, and sports diplomacy. Uh, Mussolini's Italy very much uh, through either hosting the FIFA World Cup or winning it in the 1930s several times, uh, tried to reinforce the, the concept of the, the new Italian man, um, the masculinity and the virility and the revival that uh, fascism was um, you know, uh, portrayed as um, bringing to Italy. Um, 
in Germany, something similar, except really using the 1936 Berlin Summer Games to uh, communicate to the rest of the world, not just uh, international spectators who came to Berlin uh, to attend and watch the Olympics, um, but also through the media um, and um, images uh, that were coming from those Olympics, uh, uh, the revival, the return of Germany and, and its strength under fascism. So those are, again, two much more historic examples. And in between, we've got all kinds of intersections of sports diplomacy and geopolitics, uh, especially in the Cold War, but continuing ever since. And, and you mentioned earlier that China is trying to make uh, become a soccer country itself. Uh, in the Olympics, you have countries like, or even the World Cup, when Iran plays versus, versus mm -hmm. countries that they have political issues with. And you have the Olympic athletes who join the unaffiliated team. Uh, there's a lot of optimism around Olympics, but there still is a sort of the subtle flexing or positioning, as you just mentioned, about using this as the soft power. I think mm -hmm. you, the term you used. Why do countries think that sports plays a, an identity role today? And how do how are they determining where where it makes the most sense for them to sort of flex that power? That's a great question. I wish I had all kinds of answers for all of the countries um, in the world on that, because I think it would be really interesting, um, the various different dynamics that play into that. Uh, why do countries think that sports can help create identity uh, anytime that here we talk about uh, mega sporting events, whether hosting them like the Olympics or the FIFA World Cup, FIBA World Cup, or uh, competing in them. Um, and that has to do with how you are representing either as host or as a national team. Um, obviously, the, the colors of the flag, the symbolism of the nation, the cultural ideals and values of the nation are also on display um, through, through those different types of representation. Um, and so that has long been kind of associated with these mega international sporting events. Um, and so, you know, that, that continues. Uh, keeping in mind that much of the world still views sports as a cultural endeavor, not necessarily only entertainment. Um, so there is a little bit of a different differentiation there. Um, but certainly elite sport, the kind of sport we're talking about, falls under that cultural context. Um, and then there's the idea that you can help to represent your, your, your national culture, politics, and context um, through sports. The, the exchanges that you would have with international teammates um, while, you know, in the Olympic Athletic Village, for example, you know, just uh, what you would share with other uh, fencers while you guys are waiting, those conversations that you would have or for visitors who would go uh, to another country to attend an Olympic or a World Cup event, uh, the kinds of conversations you would have with everyday people who you would meet there uh, to that would help you to have a better understanding of the country in question can often do a lot more than any sort of government policy or government-directed initiative or communications or statement. Um, Grant Wall has talked about this a little bit in terms of his experience in Russia covering the 2018 FIFA World Cup and how being able to talk with individual Russians um, and cut beyond what was coming through in the news or coming through the government gave him a much better appreciation of 
current day Russia or then current day Russia and what was going on and different Russian attitudes towards things that, you know, were popping up in the news cycle or on the field. I think the context that I first found you was working on uh, conversations around basketball Africa league. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something that we just, you you mentioned just wrapped up uh, its first season. Uh, So, so why is that project so important and why are people like, former President Obama and the NBA looking at that and saying, this is a priority market for us to develop, whether d- directly or indirectly. Yeah, I, there's there's multiple parts um, uh, of the answer, I think. First, um, very much to, to part of our earlier discussion, basketball is a global sport. It has been played in Africa since at least the 1930s. Um, it has been played in certain parts of Africa since at least the 1930s. And here again, the former colonial history comes in, in um, part, especially in parts of Francophone and Lusophone Africa. So the parts that were under, uh, formerly under French and Portuguese control, um, they uh, both uh, colonial um, mentalities uh, believed in this sense of a civilizing mission, right? That we are going to go and civilize the areas that we go into, whether it's in different parts of Africa, Asia, wherever. Um, and so they literally exported institutions of the Republic, the education system, but also the sports systems as they existed, the federation structure of national federations, uh, pretty much controlling the uh, the governance of the sport um, and um, its organization and its play, uh, whether in you know schools or elsewhere. Um, and because France and Portugal both have um, basketball cultures that predate World War I, um, they brought basketball with them um, into their parts of Africa. Um, but, you know, certainly the recent winners of Basketball Africa League, the club from Egypt, Samalek, you know, they have a very, <laughs> very long history of basketball. And so does Egypt uh, nationally as well, even though it had been for a while under British control. Um, you know, the basketball, yes, it is played in Britain, um, but not quite in the same extent as it is played in more, a little bit more popular in um, the United States or in France or Italy or other, other parts of Europe. So uh, the history gets in uh, there as well. So first, basketball was already there, maybe not as broadly, um, but certainly there was already a base Um Secondly, I think um, Basketball Africa League is important for a lot of the promise and potential that it has. It's really hard to make hard assessments right now after it's just gotten its first season off the ground and a truncated one in that. Uh, it was only a two-week tournament rather than a season-long endeavor as, it, as it's originally supposed to be. And hopefully they'll be able to do a full season um, with the next iteration. So it's important to we recognize that there's a lot of opportunities and a lot of challenges, but there's still a lot of potential. And I think um, what those potentials are is to help to increase basketball's globalization. So to continue um, its development, um, uh, particularly in Africa, um, especially in different parts of Africa where basketball might not have been as prevalent Um, But importantly, to try to stimulate investment in basketball facilities, in training programs, in trying to get shoes onto feet, um, 
particularly, and this is something that keeps coming up in a lot of my conversations with different stakeholders in and around African basketball, the, the need to develop homegrown and home-trained coaches who can help to upskill um, players um, at a much broader rate than what is currently there. So there's a lot of potential and opportunity. Um, you look at the uh, population demographics in Africa. Uh, I think um, if you dig deeply, it's much different from what many um, people in the West might think of as Africa. Um, it, there's a very big youth bulge that is starting to mature and to rise into um, different levels of the professions and in government. Um, there is also a um, sizable middle class and growing middle class um, and with disposable income and leisure time to invest in things like you know, commercialization of sports um, or to uh, you know, invest um, in sneakers for their kids to play. So that's also part of it. Um, so why is Basketball Africa League important? For those different reasons, uh, for the NBA, it's important in that it's helping it in its remake um, as a global league, not just an American one, but as a global league. And I think that's an important footprint um, for them to have, um, because if you're seen as a global league, it doesn't have the same sort of maybe hard associations with the United States, um, which is you know a good thing, a bad thing. It depends on where you sit. Um, but if you're known more as a global league, um, that it, I think perhaps in certain markets, it makes it easier to appeal um, to potential fans, consumers, young players, whatnot. Um, so there's that component. Uh, I think you also look at where the NBA is investing. And for a while, they were investing a lot in China. But I think Africa is part of a... Re, uh, shifting perhaps of their focus uh, and a bet on that growing African market. Um, uh, we think back to what was it last summer, um, the NBA finally uh, announced the closure of one of its um, academies in China. Um, there had been issues with abuse of the student athletes that were there, not by the NBA officials, but by the local Chinese coaches who were involved. Um, so you know, uh, you also think of the the incident um, between China and the NBA after the tweet by Daryl Morey um, in fall 2019 that, you know, cut out a lot of the broadcast coverage in China of the NBA until pretty recently when they restarted it. So I think that also, in, I, I you know, I'm not in the inside, so I couldn't really say specifically how much weight that has in the decision, but I think it's pretty reasonable to see their investment in the bow as a recalibration possibly um, so that they are no longer as reliant on that China market for future growth, both in terms of consumers and fans, but also in terms of players, in terms of coaches, officials, not necessarily um, with an eye to bring them all into the North American League, but really having that league in Africa um, and trying to make it one of the world's elite leagues, I think is ambitious. I'm really keen to see how they uh, go about it. And I certainly um, root for them to, to succeed because I think it then helps raise the level of the sport globally, not just on the court, but also in the industry in and around it. So I think another really important part that um, should not be overlooked is that one of the reasons why the BAL 
and NBA investment in basketball in Africa is so important is that look at the literature of not just sports histories, but also contemporary works about global sport that's out there. Nine out of 10 times, it's about soccer for very obvious reasons. There's very, very little written um, historically or even contemporarily about the global game. Um, yeah, there's a few works about the globalization of the NBA, but there's really not much at all. So what the NBA and the BAL are doing with Africa is helping to make the case for why there needs to be more work done, why basketball should be considered um, more seriously, not just as fan histories, uh, but by scholars. Um, there are not that many scholars who have worked on basketball outside of the United States, even though there are many parts of the world that have really long, important basketball tradition and cultures. China, you think uh, the Philippines, um, parts of Europe, parts of Africa and Asia, um, and Latin America, obviously. Um, so hopefully this helps to make more of a case um, that basketball is important. It is global. It might not be as big as football across many different components, but it is still a very good lens and window into geopolitics, to culture, uh, to economic and social issues. Um, particularly, you're able to look at different cultures and societies through the lens of gender much more um, through basketball than you can through football, soccer, because I do not know of a single country that ever really banned women from playing basketball. But I can give you, starting with two countries, England and Brazil, that officially banned women from playing soccer for several decades in the 20th century. So in looking at larger trends in society, you know, basketball is, I would argue, a very good route through which to do so in a way that doesn't stigmatize the women's game or uh, sets it apart or as an afterthought or as a coda because there's not as much information there. You are, you're currently working on, on further study of, of specifically France and, and sports in today's world. Yes. Um, I've been, I feel like it's been forever, but in the grand scheme of things, it hasn't been forever. I'm working on a book project on um, French basketball, um, loosely called um, Basketball Empire, A Hidden Story of the NBA's Globalization. It's the tale of how and why uh, France has become one of the main suppliers of international talent to the NBA, to the WNBA, how it's become a key NBA market in Europe but also a key linchpin into Africa. Um, and one of the really interesting parts of it, it, it has to do with you know, uh, the, the French system of youth sports training and development in which they um, have this really interesting detection uh, program throughout the country that feeds kids into their basketball um, system and structures and how they turn them out. Um, and train them so that some some of them, like Nick Batum, um, like Frank Milikina, were playing as pros at age 16. Um, but one of the really interesting facets is that it's a tale of sports diplomacy, oftentimes informal sports diplomacy, uh, that began in the 1950s and 60s with the first Americans who went to France and wound up playing on French hard courts. Um, and how they uh, introduce their French teammates to the American style of the game and the pace of the game, which is vastly different, and the American approach and culture to the game, which is vastly different, um, and increased in the 70s and 80s as more American players went to France. Uh, but also how 
the increased number of French players starting in the 1980s with the first French players who went to the United States to play basketball. Um, and then uh, in the 1990s to play in the NBA um, in the early 2000s and since to play in the WNBA and continuously in the NCAA, you know, how they, you know, how it's kind of a back and forth system and um, influx and flow, as well as how the complicated uh, post-colonial legacy between France and Francophone Africa is also feeding into this um, really interesting nexus. So lots of relevant present day sports diplomacy and cultural exchanges on and off the court. Thank you to Dr. Krasnoff for joining me for this episode. Super interesting conversation, especially if you're uh, both a history and sports fan, which I am. So I, I very much enjoyed that. You can follow Dr. Krasnoff at Lempika. L-E-M-P-I-K-A-7 on Twitter and also see all of her work at lindsaysarahkrasnoff.com. Also, obviously look out for her new book upcoming and check out her, her current work on her website. There will be some awesome updates to the Behind the Sports Story podcast coming in two weeks or so. Some new content that I think everyone's going to enjoy and I look forward to announcing that very shortly until then we'll talk soon as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when i was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.